We've uh, come to that point in our service where we open up the Word together and hear what God has to say to us. Uh, if you, uh, this is your first time here, if you're just joining us, uh, welcome. My name is Tar George. I'm one of the people on staff here. Uh, we're so delighted that you could join. Um, hello. <laughs> My son is waving to me. Wonderful. <laughs> We're so delighted you could join us today. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, we are in a sermon series looking at uh, the theme of restoration in the book of Isaiah, uh, looking at uh, how does God restore His people? Uh, what are some of the resources that He give us, gives us to help us in our relationship with Him? And so to help us in that and to uh, help us in that reading is Claire. It, the text is in your bulletin, so you can take a look at that and open that up. Uh, please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 to 31. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Claire. Well, my uh, wife and I were recently browsing some children's books for our son when we remembered an old classic called The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've heard of it before. But if you haven't read the book, it's this moving story about a friendship that develops between a little boy and a tree. Their friendship begins in childhood, and the tree allows him to gather her leaves, to climb her trunk, to swing from her branches, and to eat her fruit. They have this wonderful, wonderful bond of happiness and love. But you see, as time goes by and the boy grows up, he begins to grow disinterested in this friendship. He's a teenager now, and he finds his affections are drawn to other things. He is unhappy, and what he wants most right now is money, so that he can have fun and buy things. 
And so the tree gives him her apples to sell in the city so that he can have money to be happy. He takes them eagerly and sells them, but doesn't return. Years go by, and the teenager, now a young man, returns again. And oh, the tree is delighted. He's delighted to see him. But the reader can see that he is somehow changed. Money has not, in fact, made him happy. Instead, his appetite has only increased. He wants a large house now and a place to raise a family. Then, and only then, he believes will he be truly happy. And so the tree offers him her branches to cut down and make a house for herself, himself. He takes them and goes to build this house, but doesn't return. More time passes now, and the young man, now an older man, returns again. And the tree is delighted to see him. He is less than thrilled. You see, his life has not worked out the way he thought it would. And so now he wants a boat to travel the world and start out afresh. Then, and only then, he believes, will he be truly happy. And so out of love for this boy, the tree allows him to actually cut down her trunk, to use her wood so that he can make a boat for himself. He does so and takes her wood, and the tree is all but a stump. This is a picture of what their friendship has devolved into. And you see, what the story illustrates is this strange tension in their relationship. On the one hand, the tree seems to exhibit this incredible love and delight for the boy. But on the other hand, he seems to persist in this abuse of her relationship. His goal, as the story implies, is just to be happy. And so he continues to take the good things that the tree has given him in love, and he makes them into ultimate things. Because that's what he thinks will actually satisfy him. He forsakes his friendship time and again because ultimately he believes that what he can make, spend, or build with the tree's goods is better than the tree herself. And I think at the story's conclusion, the reader is left to ask, is that, is that really the case? You know, as we come to our text this morning, I think the prophet Isaiah illustrates a similar kind of dynamic between God and human beings. Because like the giving tree, God has been extending his love, goodness to his people. And they seem to persist in this sad abuse of his relationship. Isaiah recounts how Israel continues to take the good things that God has given them and makes them into ultimate things. Because that's what they believe will truly satisfy them. And this is what the Bible here in our passage calls idolatry. Because as we'll see, the people of Israel have continued to forsake their relationship and friendship with the Lord for things of their own making. And Isaiah here in our passage wants to call them back. Here in our passage, he invites them and us to do three things. First, to consider your idols. Second, to compare them with God. And third, to choose whom you will follow. Consider your idols, compare them with God, and choose whom you will follow. Let's look at our first point together in our text. Well, the context of this passage is quite important. If you read chapters 1 to 39, you'll see this elaborate case that Isaiah presents before God's people to explain why they're going to be sent into exile in Babylon. He argues that God has been good to them. He's been extending his grace to them, but they have instead abused this relationship and have run after other gods. And he explains that the reason they're in exile right now, the reason 
is because they have a fundamental problem of idolatry. But God wants to fix that, and He wants to repair the relationship. And that begins here by first taking a look, a hard look, at some of these idols. Look with me at the text. So Isaiah begins in verse 19 by describing how these idols are made. He says, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. Now, on a first reading, these details might not strike you as particularly interesting or important, but they were for the original author. Making an idol in the ancient world was labor-intensive work. It took time, energy, and resources. A craftsman would first design a wax mold for the idol. He'd have to shape it perfectly for size and proportion. He would then coat it with clay and bake it to preserve the idol's shape and form. After that, bronze would then be poured into the mold to give the idol a sense of weight and value. It would be given time to cool, and then the idol would be overlaid with costly gold and silver. And after all that, after that whole process, at the very end when this idol was complete, it would then be fastened to a wooden base to anchor it and hold it up. This is how an idol was typically made in the ancient world. And Isaiah wants the people to know how utterly ridiculous this whole process is. He's inviting them to actually think for a moment and deconstruct their idols. These gods that they're wanting to worship are literally man-made. Can you see that? It's formed by a craftsman, which means that his skill or lack of skill determines the shape, size, and glory of this god. It's actually pretty trivial. If you hire an excellent craftsman, you can have the privilege of working and worshiping an excellent-looking god. And if you hire a poor craftsman, then you're left to worship a pretty crappy god. <laughs> He's asking, doesn't that trouble you? Don't you see how arbitrary your worship is? He's saying a god like that doesn't even have a say in how he or she appears. It's at the complete mercy of the craftsman. In fact, even the craftsman, even the craftsman seems to recognize intuitively that this idol has no real worth or value. He has to overlay it with gold to give it the appearance of power, honor, and godliness because it doesn't have those things in itself. It's just a hunk of common metal. And look, he says, some of you can't even afford metal. Verse 20, the person who is poor can't even afford a legitimate god. I mean, it's laughable. He has to build his God from ordinary wood, hoping that it won't rot. He's asking them, does that seem like the kind of thing you ought to build your life around? Do these man-made gods really deserve your worship? He wants them, I think, to consider their idols. And it's here, I think, that he asks us to do the very same thing. You see, you might not worship an image made of clay or bronze, but the Bible says that all of us, whether Christian or otherwise, routinely find ourselves worshiping these idols. Now, an idol, as the Bible explains, isn't necessarily a physical image or a deity, but it is essentially anything that we would deify in the place of God. In other words, an idol can be anything that you regard with a, a certain godlike priority over your life. It often controls how you feel about yourself how you spend your money, where you invest your time, and what you value most. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, I think explains it well. 
He writes that when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I can just have that, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. I wonder, as you hear that definition, if there are things that come to your mind. What are the things that you look to over and above God for meaning, value, and significance? Keller concludes, an idol is something we look to for things that only God can give us. And this is the fundamental problem behind Israel's idolatry. Because each of these idols represent gods in the ancient world who they believe could give them something that they really wanted. Whether it's Baal or Dagon, Chemosh or Moloch, each of these gods in the ancient world offered things that were attractive to Israel. Things like wealth, fertility, dominion, power, or land. And Israel worshipped these gods in particular because they wanted to gain these specific benefits. Now, I grant you that that might sound utterly ridiculous and ignorant to you. But consider for a moment, are we actually all that different as a culture? We live in a secular city that cares little about religious worship. There's no question about that. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that we've merely traded the worship of these name gods for the worship of their benefits instead? I mean, you might not have an idol of Dagon sitting in your home, but do you have an idol of prosperity and comfort? You might not have an idol of Baal in the office, but have you made an idol out of power and influence? You might not have an idol of Chemosh, but I'm guessing, I'm guessing you care a whole lot about control. You see, these words from Isaiah are not, in fact, outdated. We still have this problem of idolatry in our day. It just looks a little different. The reality is that all, for all our progress and our advancement, we're still worshiping the same gods, just under different names. You see, the uncomfortable truth about this passage, men and women, is this. We're too sophisticated to worship the gods of the ancient world, but not too sophisticated to worship what they had to offer. This is what we do. This is what we do. Because I think we do have these idols. Things like wealth, power, reputation, control, competence, beauty, comfort. Well, this could go on. And like the people in Isaiah's time, I think we often find ourselves pouring time, money, and energy into building and preserving these idols, hoping that they can give us something that only God can. And that's why Isaiah is saying, He's asking us to deconstruct these idols. Because our idols, whatever they may be, can't deliver, but they promise us a sense of wholeness. And so we have this innate commitment, I think, to defend them, to hold them close, and to serve them, sometimes even to our own detriment. Isaiah says in verse 20 that we're the type of people who will do whatever it takes to ensure that our idols will not move. The Hebrew word he uses here for move is yimot. I think the NIV actually translates it better. This word yimot means to shake or to totter. 
What Isaiah is saying is that these so-called gods are so fragile and so unstable that just waiting to topple over and smash. And yet the problem that this passage illustrates is that we're often so enamored with these idols that we refuse to let that happen. We know deep down that they're counterproductive to the gospel, but we're tempted to dignify them with gold. We know that these idols are rotting away and producing harm in our lives, but we're committed to serving them anyway. We know that these idols are unstable, unreliable, and ready to totter, but we'll often do everything in our power again to anchor them in place. Tell me, do you find that true about your own life? I'll be honest, I've made idols out of competency and reputation. And I find these words to be true of me and how I handle them before God. What about you? What about you? I think Isaiah here wants us to consider the idols in our lives and to deconstruct them. This is his first point. You know, secondly here, as we look at the text, I think Isaiah asks us to compare these idols with God. You'll notice several times in the text that Isaiah asks a set of rhetorical questions. He says things like this, to whom then will you liken God? What likeness would you compare with him? This passage, you see, is pitting two competitors against each other. And Isaiah wants you to know who is the clear winner. On the one side, there are these so-called functional gods, the idols of the world. And on the other side is the one true God of the Bible. And Isaiah intentionally wants you to compare the two. He says in verse 21, Do you not know? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? He's taking God's people on a journey back to the very beginning of the world. He's reminding them of the creation story in Genesis 1. God was there at the foundations of the earth. And if you read Genesis 1, you'll notice that God is the creator. He is the master craftsman. Isaiah actually reiterates this later in verse 28. And as the master craftsman, God does this astonishing thing in Genesis 1. He starts to make tiny, human-sized images of himself. And he fills the world with them. The Bible tells us that you and I are made after the image of God. That language, you understand, is is very, very intentional. Isaiah is reminding people that God has crafted them after his image. They are to be like him, and they are to reflect his character and his interest to the rest of the world. That's what we're supposed to do. And the problem of idolatry is that these people who are made to represent God's interests now want to create gods that represent their interests. It's a complete role reversal. But it's what we do. It's what we do. And actually, it's a sham. Because these idols that we have are not gods at all. They're not. And so in verses 22 to 26, Isaiah wants to set the record straight. He says, let me tell you about this God. Let me tell you about this God and why he is so much greater than your idols. Verse 22, Isaiah writes, he sits above the circle of the earth. He is greater. This God is greater than earthly things. What is clay, gold, and silver to him? How could money, fame, or possessions compare with him? 
Well, God is so powerful and so great that he actually runs the cosmos. That's what Isaiah says. Verse 22, he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings out the stars by number, calling them all by name. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Verse 26, he's saying, look, God made the stars. How can anything you make compare with that? God made the stars. If you were here last Sunday, you might remember that Graham had us reflect on these incredible photos that came out from the James Webb Telescope. Uh, Maybe you had a chance to look at them this past week. It's amazing, isn't it? It's really amazing. We're seeing these galaxies and stars approximately 13 billion light years away. We had no idea that they even existed, but God did, and God knows them all by name, this text says. We don't know anything. We don't know anything. In fact, you may have seen a funny news article just days ago about a physicist named Etienne Klein. Etienne captured a photo early in the week allegedly taken from the James Webb Telescope. It showed a close-up image of an amazing, amazing red-colored star located out in our cosmos. He tweeted, photo of Proxima Centauri, the closest star to the sun located 4.2 light years from us. He praised the level of detail in the image, writing, a new world is revealed day after day. Well, as you can imagine, social media went into a tizzy. The photo was shared hundreds of times and received thousands of likes. But you see, what nobody seemed to realize was that Etienne had actually been playing a practical joke. What people thought was an image of Proxima Centauri, the famous red star, was actually just a slice of chorizo sausage. (laughs) It's a true story. You can go read about it. Let me tell you, people were really angry. People were really angry. They didn't like the joke at all. But this is precisely Isaiah's point. You don't even know the difference between a star in the sky and a chorizo sausage. Like, what do you really know about the world? What do you know about the world? How much do you really comprehend about God and his work? He's saying, if you can't even fathom God's greatness out in the cosmos, how do you expect to capture it in an idol made with dirt? Isn't that just foolish? It's not just foolish. He's arguing that God is so much bigger and more grand than you and I can fit into our tiny little idol, whatever it may be. God knows everything and he sees everything. All of time is in his hands. Even people as advanced and learned as we are are just like grasshoppers before him. That's what Isaiah says. There's nothing greater in all existence that can compare with this God. And that's why, Isaiah says, he deserves your worship, not these idols. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that might feel like a lot to stomach. I think whether you're a skeptic or agnostic, the idea of worshiping something or someone feels like a pretty big commitment. But what Isaiah is claiming here in this passage is that everybody worships. Everybody worships. We all have these idols that we make out to be just like God. The decision is actually not whether we will worship. Rather, the decision according to this text is whether we will worship the right thing. 
Because you see, for most of us in the West, if it isn't some kind of religious deity, then it will be some aspect of human existence that we will idolize. In fact, it was acclaimed author and agnostic, David Foster Wallace, who observed this trend in our culture. In his most popular book, his work, sorry, uh, This Is Water, he explains, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud always on the verge of being found out. The truth, he concludes, is that everybody worships something. I wonder, does any of that ring true of you and the people in your life? Is that not an accurate description of what you see happening in the world? You see, I think we elevate these modern-day idols like power, wealth, and influence to godlike status. These are the things we functionally serve with our lives. But like Wallace explains, these things will only fool and fail you. They can't give you meaning, life, happiness, or even salvation. And even if they promise you that, you need only worship there so long to realize that it's not real, healthy, or even truly sustainable. And look, Isaiah actually wants you to see that in our text. Look with me at the passage. Verse 22, he said, God brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth an emptiness. These are the people who are the movers and shakers in Isaiah's time. They're the people who have it all, who have all the things that you and I covet and that we idolize most. They have wealth, possessions, control, influence, comfort, pleasure, and every other kind of worldly power at their disposal. And yet, Isaiah observes, their lives are reduced to emptiness. These things can't deliver, and God ultimately brings them to nothing. Isaiah says, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither like stubble. He's saying this is the end result of a person who puts their hope in an idol. It won't serve them because it can't, wear, it can't bear the God-sized weight of their expectations. It won't do that. I say he wants to ask us, what are the things that you're presently looking to over and above God for meaning, value, and significance in this life? Compare these with God, Isaiah says, because ultimately, he is much greater. And this is his second point. You know, third and finally, I think Isaiah here asks us to choose whom we will follow. He's asked us to consider these idols, to compare them with God, and now he places a choice before us. What will we choose to worship? Well, in verse 27, we get a glimpse of how the people in Isaiah's day responded. 
He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right or cause is disregarded by my God? Remember, they're currently in exile in Babylon, and they're wondering, why has God abandoned us here? Why has he left us here? Now, the statement is ironic for two reasons, the most glaring of which is that they claim in good conscience that the Lord has been their God. This is my God. And that's just not true, because as we've been seeing, they've been worshiping a whole bunch of other gods. So where did they get this idea? Well, if you read the book of Isaiah carefully, you'll find that these people didn't actually forget about God altogether. Rather, the problem was that they wanted to keep him in their back pocket. They wanted to have him as just one of the many gods with which they worshiped. You see, they thought, maybe not unlike many of us, that they could serve God alongside every other idol in their lives. And Isaiah is saying, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. In fact, it is as English philosopher John Ruskin once wrote. He says, God will put up with a great many things in the human heart, but there's one thing he will not put up with, and that is a second place. He continues, he who offers God a second place offers him no place. This is what Isaiah is saying here in the text. You cannot serve both God and your idols. You have to make a choice. And this brings us, I think, to the real issue. Because the second irony about this passage is that these people believe wholeheartedly that God has disregarded their cause. Verse 27. They recognize that they've messed up and they haven't been altogether faithful to God. And as they're sitting in exile, they're wondering, will God still be faithful to us? Does he still care about us? Will he still be God to us and come to our aid even now? And listen, Isaiah has some good news for them and for us. Because in verses 28 to 31, he uses this beautiful, beautiful poetic language to answer their question. He says, don't you know by now what kind of God you have? Haven't you been listening? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord, listen, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isaiah is telling them in no uncertain terms that God sees where they are, as he sees, I think, each of us this morning. He knows you because he created you. He understands where you're at with him because his understanding is unsearchable, Isaiah says. He knows that there are idols that we've been nursing that have wearied us and have sapped our strength. And yet, his desire from this text is to renew us, to give us strength. Isaiah is saying that God has a plan to bring you out of exile. He's going to save you and show you that he is God in the most undeniable way. 
Because 13 chapters later, Isaiah explains how God is going to finally restore his people to their proper relationship with him. A time is coming, he says, when they will no longer be exiled from his presence. Isaiah explains that God is going to one day send a better prophet, his own son. And rather than being a prophet who condemns people for their sin, he's going to be a prophet who is condemned for people's sin. The New Testament, speaking about this person, tells us that at the proper time, God revealed a perfect image of himself. And it was none other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience to God that you and I could never live. And in doing so, he cast aside every idol of power that would allure us. Power, influence, comfort, and control. Everything that was within his grasp. And he instead chose the way of the cross. Men and women, I want you to understand from this passage that in Jesus, this creator God stepped into creation. The one who does not faint or grow weary, wearied himself for you. Bible explains that Jesus was exiled on behalf of God's people. The very Son of God was driven out from God's own city, Jerusalem, and made to walk to his crucifixion. And it was there, on that ancient hill, that God showed you finally his faithfulness. You see, the irony of this story is that through the love of Jesus, this rugged Roman cross became for us a giving tree. Christ, in an act of love, allowed his body to be cut down so that men and women everywhere could receive what they really and truly needed but didn't even have the sense to ask for. Friends, I need to tell you that whatever large or little thing that you're looking for in your idols, Jesus secured that much more for you at the cross. It's because of him that you and I have forgiveness, love, and eternal comfort. What could compare with that? What could compare with that? And listen, the Bible says that this Jesus, this Jesus, the everlasting God, is now alive, seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, waiting for exiles like you and me to make our way home. Isaiah wants you to know that this God is worth infinitely more than the things of this world. So would you choose with every fiber of your being to follow him instead. Well, if you're reading this passage and you're wondering, how do I apply this text? What does this mean for me? How do I put this into practice in my life? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I think you've heard a lot today about idols. I wanna invite you to consider that you have a God-sized space in your heart. And our culture will tempt you to fill it with a great many things. These things will not save or satisfy you. I want to suggest instead that what you need most for life, meaning and happiness, is what the gospel actually has to offer you this morning, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe that seems like a strong claim to make, but I would grant you, if everything in the world actually revolves around God, and if he's truly the greatest good, as Isaiah has been telling us, and I think you would neglect him to your own detriment. I'd ask you to think about that. For the Christian here, I think there's a lot that can be said about idols. In fact, entire books have been written on this topic, so this sermon, I think, only begins to scratch the surface. 
However, I think here are two principles for the text that I think you can apply. First, consider the idols in our culture. Consider the idols in our culture. I think you should recognize that there are craftsmen in our city today, just as there were craftsmen in Isaiah's day. They're not literal people casting silver and gold, do you understand? But there are things like social media, television, education, and culture that are telling you how to run your life and what to value most. These are the craftsmen of our day, shaping for you what you ought to worship. And that means that like the people of Israel, God calls you to be discriminating about the kinds of things you allow to influence you. I think this passage asks us to sift the values and priorities of our society carefully and to see them through the light of the gospel. Don't just accept them, whatever they are, at face value. Second, consider the idols in your life. Consider the idols in your life. I want to say that there are many things that you can pursue in life that are meaningful and surely good. This text isn't suggesting in any way that everything that you care about that isn't God is necessarily an idol. Not at all, no. Gold, silver, and clay are not bad things you understand, but you can make them into something ultimate. Similarly, your desire for a home, a job, a partner, or a child isn't necessarily a bad thing. Neither is ambition, a certain amount of wealth, or a need for validation, you understand. However, however, it is possible to make each of these into something ultimate, to functionally live your life as if that thing and not God is your highest priority. Don't do that. Don't do that. So, how do you know when something's becoming an idol? Well, here are some questions that I found helpful in my own life to examine what's going on, and I would commend them to you. What do I daydream about? What do I fear most in my life? What do I hope most to be true? What makes me really happy? What makes me really sad or angry? What do I worry about? What makes me anxious? What thing or things do I tend to languish without? What do I find myself talking about? What do I find myself praying about? Where do I tend to spend my money? And how do I tend to spend my time? And this isn't like an overnight thing, but I'd encourage you to go home and think about these things in your life. Ask the Lord in prayer sincerely and prayerfully to reveal your idols to you. And as you do that, I want to leave you with this final thought. I want to suggest that whatever it is that you think you really need from your idol is maybe a symptom of something greater you actually need to believe about your God. Ask yourself, what is it that I'm really seeking that's behind my idols? Is it meaning or love, stability, or even identity? How has God actually and historically given these things to me in the gospel? I'd ask you to do that. And may the Lord bless you in your efforts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this passage that tells us how great and wonderful and good that you are to us. God, you know our idols, and I pray that you would expose them to us. That we would be a people that love you more with all of our lives and obey you and not our idols. We pray that you convict and convince us that you are better and that you would help us walk the way of the cross until we meet you um, and return home as exiled people into your eternal care. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we have a short time for, for Q&A now, and Rex is going to help us with that. So, Tarek, this morning we've got a question here, um, and I'm just going to read it out to you here. What's the difference between the worship of career success and having ambition? Practically speaking, how do you prioritize God over career when we spend 80% of our waking hours working? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I would commend to you some of the questions that uh, we shared in the application to ask that of, about yourself and your career and your profession. Um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's untrue that the thing that you spend the most of your time is necessarily your idol. I mean, I think you've got to work to you know, work to eat and live. Um, I, I don't think that necessarily needs to become an idol for you any more than it was an idol for the ancient Israelite. Um, but I think asking some of these questions and really, um, really thinking about, um, do I prioritize work maybe more than God? If God were to ask me to leave my job or to do something else, would I do that willingly? Would I do that happily, or, or is this something that I'm holding on uh, very tightly to? Not that I, I think God is calling you to, to leave your job necessarily, but I think it's always helpful to ask those kinds of questions about, like, I think they show us what we value most. Um, uh, like I said, I think a lot of these things are, are, are very case-by-case. Case. They're very personal things, uh, but if you're interested in working through that with somebody on our pastoral staff, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Um, but, but, it's, but it's not to say that, that anything that isn't God, um, anything you care about that isn't God is necessarily an idol. So, yeah. Thanks, Tarek. I got another one here for you. Um, and uh, to sort of summarize a little bit here, um, it appears that this question is targeting at that, um, the fact that God doesn't seem as real as some of the gods, the more tangible things that we see. So the question speaks to uh, or asks that uh, the live experience is that these idols have power and control in our lives, um, not so much God, as the question is asked here. Uh, how do we respond to the experience uh, of what we perceive as an ineffective, silent God? Uh, can you read the last part of that question? Sure. How do we respond to the experience of an ineffective, silent God? Hmm. I don't want to give the indication that idols have no power. Idols have tremendous amount of power. Um, oftentimes the things that we own end up owning us. Uh, it's about uh, whether that's a good power or not, whether that's a good influence or not. Um, I don't dispute that uh, idols of wealth and um, money or fame, reputation, prestige, all of these things, uh, that they can give you tremendous power in this life. But as the gospel shows us, that it, it's, it's not... It's not about this life. Uh, if you're a Christian, your, your ultimate home is not here. And so to set your hope in the world, I, I think, would be, would be wrong. Um, so I think you do see uh, some of these things uh, functioning in our society and in our culture. And yet, um, I, I think the gospel does offer you tremendous resources, actually. I think the Holy Spirit has been given to you so that you can have power to live the Christian life. Um, in, in, uh, in, in the world that, that you're here. And so whether it, you're, uh, you have a family or whether you're going to work, whether you're at school, um, you, you have tremendous power to resist these idols and actually showcase to the world that God is better. And that's, that's actually one of the missional priorities that Israel is supposed to do. That God is blessing them and giving them uh, power so that the surrounding nations would see the futility of their idols. And I think that's, that's what the church is actually called to do. 
Um, and if you're thinking about power and uh, you know, where do we get the resources to do that, I think, I think that's why we always have um, the sermon, uh, the communion table coming right after, after the service because this is ultimately where we're reminded of, our, of the power, that this comes from Jesus, that he has uh, made a way through a meal to empower us and equip us uh, to live the Christian life well, that he's given us the church, that he's given us his spirit, and that he, he will, uh, will help you in those things. Uh, so so I, think, I, I think the gospel does give you actually tremendous power. Uh, maybe not power in the way that you're, uh, you're used to seeing, uh, but I'd, I'd ask you to think about that, how the, how the gospel does that in your life. Uh, we, that's about as much time as we have for right now because we have an important announcement after the service, but I'll stick around afterwards if you want to chat or if you have some questions, you can also email me at Tarek at gracetoronto.ca. Thanks so much, Tarek. Um, Church, why don't we rise as we uh, respond? Um, I'm going to say a quick prayer for us as the worship team comes up. Father God, we give you praise and we thank you for your word, Lord, that is living and active and cuts us deep, Lord. Will you reveal to us, Father, uh, and help us discern through the Holy Spirit what are these things that are gripping us? What are these false idols that are holding us back? from seeing the true living God. Lord, will you be with us today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.